The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. We still have the right kinds of mosquitoes, or at least you know, species of Anopheles that are capable of transmitting malaria. Um, but unless there's an infected person, you can't have transmission. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled, A Zebra Among the Horses, Clinical Implications of Malaria in the United States. Joining us on the podcast are David Hamer, who's Professor of Global Health and Medicine at Boston University School of Public Health and Boston University, Shabanian and Avedician School of Medicine. He's the director of their travel clinic. And Ralph Hutes who is an adult infectious disease physician in the Department of Infectious and Tropical Diseases at Sacra Cur Don Calibria Hospital in Negrar, Verona, in Italy. He's also the co-principal investigator of Geocentennial, an emerging infectious diseases network of the International Society of Travel Medicine and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. David and Ralph, thank you so much for joining our podcast. I was really intrigued by your article about malaria in the USA because I'd read something in the newspaper, but not being uh, an infectious disease specialist, didn't have the background. So maybe you could start just by talking about the recent cases of malaria without travel to endemic areas, because that sort of opens up our interest And then we can talk about some of the other things. This is a relatively unusual occurrence. Um, There were a few patients identified that had not traveled all in Sarasota County in Florida, and then one completely unrelated in, in Texas. And they were identified eventually as having Plasmodium vivax, um, malaria, And then subsequently, a couple additional cases were identified in Florida for a total of seven cases there, and then one in Texas. And this is unusual in that we haven't had local transmission of uh, identified in the United States for a number of years. I was intrigued in your article about when malaria was sort of quieted down, I think you said in the 50s, is that right? Yes, I mean malaria has been endemic in the United States for you know really probably a couple hundred years and, and until the the sort of middle of last century, and then a combination of you know effective treatments, you know more uh, vector control, control of the mosquito populations, you know more screen windows, 
and other measures led to to elimination of of in, really a, of a population of infected people, um, we still have the right kinds of mosquitoes, or at least is, you know, species of Anopheles that are capable of transmitting malaria. But unless there's an infected person, you can't have transmission. And so by eliminating sort of the population that's infected, we've been able to, to keep it under control. Um, but there's a constant risk of reintroduction. Yeah, and, and we do have a number of cases of malaria in the United States each year from travelers about how many of those are there each year and what are the most common areas they're coming from? Malaria is mainly imported into the United States from uh, South America and from uh, from Africa. And there is uh, there was a, an excellent review article uh, two years ago in, in the JAMA journal and uh, it estimated numbers uh, between say 1500 and and, uh, and 2000 cases a year the majority of these cases that are imported are falciparum cases the cases that we described here in this current uh, local outbreak are uh, plasmodium vivax cases and that, that is that that is a very important uh, distinction because it's not like any case that is imported can spark uh, local or autochthonous uh, transmission right away. The The life cycle of plasmodium species is very uh, complex. Uh, so in a human host, in a patient, the parasite needs to develop into a gametocyte or sexual stage before it can infect mosquitoes. So if you treat patients right away, the uh, the plasmodium the malaria will not develop into uh, to stages that can actually uh, infect mosquitoes and set off local uh, transmission and I think that's a very important message. So um, I think what you're saying is for some probably what happened is somebody had malaria with with plasmodium vivax and didn't get treated and diagnosed right away continued to be sick mosquitoes found him or her and then mosquitoes could infect other people. Do I, do I have that right? Yes, yeah. correct. Okay. So I know that there are multiple species of plasmodium. Maybe you could just give us a quick overview of the ones that we might see in the U.S. You know, worldwide, the real big uh, worrisome species is plasmodium uh, falciparum, and mainly because it's it's very widespread in in um, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, and in most countries there it accounts for ninety to ninety-five percent of cases. Um, but it's also found in a number of other parts of the world. Plasmodium vivax is probably the second most common. Generally, causes not as it's less likely to cause severe disease and death, although it it can rarely cause severe disease. And then um, and those are, are the two that we're probably most likely to see in the United States. There are a couple other species. Plasmodium malariae occurs at a very low incidence in many parts of the world. Uh, Plasmodium ovale, primarily found in West Africa and a little bit in the Horn of Africa, but basically it's very limited in its distribution. Um, So theoretically that could be introduced as well. And then there is a a Plasmodium nalesi, which is really a, pr- a form of uh, malaria that causes infections in primates. And, and we didn't used to have it on the list as causing human malaria, but there's been good recognition of this, but that's really limited to parts of uh, Malaysia and Southeast Asia. 
And so I think that one would be very unlikely to be seen locally. As someone who mostly works in the hospital, we certainly get people admitted to our service with fever. Primary care physicians have patients coming to them with fever. So what I'd like to do with the two of you right now is come up with the questions we should be asking and the illness script and when should that red flag be raised that this we might want to think about malaria. This will be mostly in, tra- in travelers, but maybe in Florida, Texas, in the warmer parts of the country. And I live in Alabama. We certainly might have a traveler who, come, who came here and, and would spread it to someone else. What are the clues that you might be dealing with malaria? Malaria is, and I think it's important to emphasize again, is mainly an imported disease. So that means that uh, if you uh, have a, 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 an appropriate uh, exposure history, exposure by travel to malaria endemic areas, that is going to be your single most important uh, giveaway to a diagnosis of uh, malaria in a febrile patient. So for Americans, for for uh, people who uh, who live in the United States and have not lived in uh, malaria endemic areas, they are considered non-immune they don't have any immunity and malaria will will invariably be uh, a febrile illness if the, if those uh, patients with fever uh, after travel come into uh, uh, to your your office or your uh, emergency department you do your your workup the thing is with, with malaria it's an it's considered an undifferentiated fever but having said that, it can present with, uh, I mean, it's, it, it can present as a flu-like illness. It can present with uh, joint pains. It can present, but mainly it will present with a fever and headache and, and no other uh, important clues as to the cause of the, of the fever. So that means that, that to establish a diagnosis of, of malaria, you really need good diagnostics. And the the gold standard in malaria diagnostics is still microscopy. It, it will allow to determine the level of parasitemia. It will allow the different species, which is important because it has consequences for management. But it also requires specialized and, and highly trained lab technicians to be able to establish uh, this type of diagnosis. So in the past, let's say, 22 30 years, there have been uh, lots of uh, developments in the field of of, uh, rapid diagnostic testing, small cassettes with nitrocellulose strips that contain uh, malarial antigens. And they are, they're they're not 100% accurate, but they have been a a game changer in uh, in the capacity of uh, diagnosing uh, malaria at uh, facilities that do not have these well-trained lab technicians in in position. And I think that is really, really crucial to establish a diagnosis of malaria in the United States. Can can I add a few things to this? Um, You know, one one is, I think we should really emphasize the importance of a travel history. If you don't ask somebody whether they've traveled and they have a a febrile illness, you could easily miss a diagnosis of malaria or other things such as dengue that might be causing a fever in a traveler. Um, That's one point. Non-immune individuals um, who are returning from malaria endemic area will generally, as as Ralph said, have a sort of a non-localizing systemic, um, you know, fever, headache, you know, episodes of, of diaphoresis. 
But sometimes there'll be a lot of GI complaints. There can be nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea um, in a non-immune individual. So it can sort of overlap uh, an acute gastroenteritis. But again, usually fever is present in that context. And you know, other than that, you know, there's some subtle lab clues too. Um, patients with acute malaria often will have you know some degree of thrombocytopenia. They may have some degree of anemia, but again, it's not very specific. So as as Ralph has said, you know, doing a, a diagnostic test is really important. Blood smears require specialized skill to interpret, um, and 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 unless you've got a good hematopathologist or an infectious disease specialist with experience reviewing smears, uh, there may be delays. There is only one rapid diagnostic test approved for use in the United States, and it's it's one of the better ones, but it's not perfect. I mean, it it you know lacks sensitivity if there's a real low grade parasitemia. Sometimes there's some issues with specificity. And it's it's really it's pretty good or very good for falciparum, but it's not quite as good for non-falciparum species. And beyond that, PCR is another option, um, but but that's not routinely available. It usually requires sent out to a reference lab or the CDC. So you know we're still stuck with the need to to have a blood smear done and interpreted by someone with relevant expertise. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize this back to you, and. Please correct me if I'm making any mistakes. So certainly if someone comes in with fever and it's not immediately obvious what's wrong, you always want to take a travel history. And especially if they've been in endemic areas, and we previously discussed the endemic areas, uh, then we have to think malaria is in our differential. If we think malaria is in our differential, you know, we get taught about quotidian fevers and stuff like that. But what I hear you saying is any fever could be the way malaria presents. It doesn't always fit the classic textbook uh, description. That It often also overlaps with gastroenteritis. And when in doubt, you ought to test because you do want to treat malaria. And the question then for testing is, if you're an institution, like at my institution, we have hematopathologists who can look at a smear well, but... Uh, Many people listening to us are at smaller hospitals or smaller private practices that maybe they could get a rapid test involved or maybe call the CDC or, or uh, their, their state public health department might be able to give them advice on how to try, try to exclude that in their uh, diagnostic workup. Did that all make sense? Yeah, no, that's a very good summary. And, and you know, I think when in doubt, um, the CDC malaria branch um, and sort of parasitic diseases group there are are ready to, to be available to answer questions and to help facilitate uh, both diagnosis and um, as needed treatment. I think one of the reasons that you and your co-authors wrote this article is just to remind us that while it, this is in the United States, a rare disease, it can occur in the United States. And there are certainly, there's a big upsurge in tra travel around the world this year. And so we're going to have more and more people coming back, either in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, they are going to South America. I assume that you can get malaria in uh, Asia uh, travel. And so with all those we need a way to try to do a better job of diagnosing and treating. So what are the barriers to us being better at that in the U.S. right now? 
If you look at um, uh, malaria in the past uh, 25 years worldwide, it's been declining. The numbers have been declining because of uh, uh, effective uh, diagnosis and treatment, awareness in, in endemic areas. And in travelers, uh, the way to prevent uh, malaria is, so if you intend to travel to an endemic area, you should uh, have a pre-travel consultation and you should have prophylaxis uh, prescribed and take it as prescribed. That is really, really very important. And it will, it, it, it's, it's very, very, very effective. So if somebody is, is taking uh, prophylaxis as prescribed, uh, chances of, of getting malaria are, are very, very slim. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's really where it, where it starts. Having said that, it's an interesting observation that while worldwide malaria prevalence is, is, has been decreasing, the number of cases in travelers uh, seem to be increasing uh, worldwide. So this is to, for, for travelers uh, returning to the United States, but also to other non-endemic areas like, like Europe. So this is probably uh, indicative of, uh, of people not taking any prophylaxis and underestimating the risks that they, that they are exposed to when traveling. So I'm um, not sure if that answers your, your question, but I think it's an important uh, observation and I think uh, it's important to share with the listeners. Yeah, it seems that there's uh, that many people in the United States are, are wary of prophylaxis. I mean, they don't take vaccines uh, and it, and this is more complicated than taking a vaccine. And, uh, and it costs money. And it costs money. But if you're traveling there, you probably had some money to, to spend for that travel. So I think that that really helps me a lot. And and I hope that for the physicians listening to this podcast, it brings in their mind that they should have an idea of what to do if someone's traveling. I'm fortunate enough to work at a place where we have a traveler's clinic, so I can send people to a traveler's clinic. Yeah. Yeah, can um, I add a little bit about this? I mean, this please. Was, but VFR travelers. Pre-travel component. Um, and I think that that as Ralph said, there there are, we do have a several effective medications for prevention of malaria in travelers. There's one in particular at Tovaquone Proguanol, which is a fixed dose combination of two medications that has really been a game changer in a way. Because before that, we had mefloquine, which has got a lot of potential you know, drug interactions and side effects. It can't be used in certain you know certain medical conditions. And then there's doxycycline, which is hard to take for a prolonged period of time. Uh, you know the challenge is really getting access to populations that are traveling. Um, and and Ralph just mentioned VFR that stands for visiting friends and relatives. So a lot of people go back home to visit their family, um, yeah. and they you know go from high income to a low income country, right. and they you know they're like ah oh, you know I had malaria when I was younger I don't I don't need to worry about it. Well, actually you you do you 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 only develop partial immunity, and as you're away for more and more time, you lose that immunity. Um, and so, so I actually have a whole panel of patients that I see in my travel clinic um, that are Africans that have had malaria once after travel, and they realize that they can prevent it, and, and they were really quite sick when they came back. And so then they seek pre-travel care, but, but there are a lot of people that do not. And so you know, one of the biggest risk population is really people going back to visit family. And and primary care providers, if they're, you know, in contact with them and learn that their patients are traveling, you know, there are a lot of resources available. The CDC Yellow Book has malaria maps um, that can guide, you know, when, when um, and where you need prophylaxis. And that 
is sort of the best you know option is prevention rather than having to worry about treatment upon return. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for joining on this podcast. I think that this is going to be very helpful to uh, our primary care colleagues uh, as well as our hospitalist colleagues because some people some of these people end up in the hospital because they their fevers are so significant. And uh, you've taught me a lot, and I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating discussion focused first on the diagnosis and treatment of malaria in the United States. While there are some sporadic cases of malaria acquired just in the United States, generally it occurs in travelers. It is important that we as internists take a travel history when you have a patient with significant fever and no obvious cause of that fever, and especially if they've been to endemic area to include malaria in our differential. If we're at a hospital or a private practice where we don't have easy access to thick blood smears, uh, we need to reach out to a travel clinic or the CDC to try to find help in making that diagnosis. More important Uh, We should all be aware of the importance of prophylaxis when someone is going to an endemic area of malaria. This is important not just for the patient who's going there, but also for their contacts after they get back. If they have active malaria and are not treated, then mosquitoes can bite them, then bite people who are not infected and spread malaria within the United States. This is a complex problem, is likely not to decrease in the United States in the near future, and I hope that this podcast has helped you better understand the implications of malaria and prevention. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.